0: So, open your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter twenty-seven. We're coming to the end; uh, two more weeks left in the book of Acts. So let's uh, let's read together. Uh, we'll have that up on the screen. Uh, we're going to read down to verse twenty-six together this morning just to get a context for where we are and for what the Lord is saying. So in Acts chapter 27, it begins, And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So entering a ship of Adramidium, we put to sea, meeting to sail along the coast of Asia, Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. And the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. And when we had put out to sea, excuse me, when we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off uh, Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Maya, a city of Lycia. And there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. And when we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off of Snidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salome. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lacia. Now, when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest, and winter there. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, putting out the sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclidon. So when the ship was caught and could not uh, head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauta, we secured the siff with difficulty. And when they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. And fearing lest they should run aground on Sirtis, on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reading of your word. May you speak to us. May you lead us. May you guide us. And Lord, as always, would you speak to us as a church and would you speak to us as individuals for the needs and the desires that we have in our own lives and hearts. And may you minister your grace and your mercy this morning. And in abundance, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So beginning back in chapter 21, Paul had arrived at Jerusalem. He had been on a journey to get back there. His third missionary journey was over. He had traveled by foot on well over 5,000 miles in making the journeys he had made. And as he was coming back to Jerusalem, we know that the Spirit was ministering and speaking, saying, Paul, when you get back there, chains and difficulty await you, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be prosecuted. Remember, Paul, as he was going back to Jerusalem, he got a lot of counsel from people saying, you know, Paul, you shouldn't go if you know these things are going to happen. Perhaps you should turn around. Perhaps you should go somewhere else. You should go somewhere different. But Paul had a word from the Lord, and we are told that he had an urging of the Spirit that he should go, and so he went. So in chapter 21, Paul arrived in Jerusalem, and he wanted to fulfill his heart's desire, which was to preach to his brethren, his Jewish brethren. And knowing his own journey and how he had been a uh, Hebrew of he- Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and uh, he had been a member of the Sanhedrin, he felt for certain that God could use him and that God would use him to speak and to see some of his brothers get saved. And he thought, if, if I'm not qualified to speak to my brothers, who is? And so as he got there and he began to speak and he began to preach to them, they became violent, they became angry. Because he said that God had taken the gospel to the Gentiles, and so from chapter twenty-one to chapter twenty-six, Paul's been on trial. Uh, he was on trial in Jerusalem. He got sent to Caesarea. He got uh, put on trial before Felix. Felix kind of held him in custody for two years. Uh, he, uh, the Lord, had of course spoken to Paul that he would be going to uh, to Rome to see Caesar. And so he had been waiting for two years for something to happen, and the changing of the guard happened. Uh, Felix left, Festus came in, Festus looked at it and said, "Uh, apparently Felix left some unfinished business for me to deal with. What do I do? There's no charges against this man. He began to speak with Paul and allow Paul to speak to him, and Paul did what he always does, which was share his testimony and preach the gospel. Those were his answers to people, uh, giving his testimony and preaching the gospel, And so as he did that, uh, Festus didn't really know what to do with him. King Agrippa came by. He had Paul uh, meet with King Agrippa, and that's what we looked at last week. And Paul did his very best to persuade King Agrippa, because King Agrippa had a background in the Jewish religion. And Paul preached to him very passionately. And so at the end of the time, King Agrippa said, I find nothing against this man. These are religious matters. And if this man had not appealed to Caesar, because, of course, Paul was a Roman citizen, he might have been released. But we know, as we've been looking at all throughout the book of Acts, and especially Paul's journeys, God has been in control. God has been orchestrating Paul's steps. And so here we are in chapter 27, the time in Caesarea has ended, two plus years, And now he's getting on a boat to sail to Italy. They're finally taking him to Rome. So beginning in verse 1, when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan Regiment. So the Augustan Regiment are Caesar's personal guards. And if we were going to compare it to something in our society today, it would be most comparable to our secret service. So Paul is not delivered into just a, a local sheriff being a transport for a prisoner. He's being delivered into Caesar's personal guards. And so this man, Julius, as we're going to find out, took a liking to Paul. And I would even say it, that God gave a favor uh, to Julius on Paul's behalf. So this man, Julius, um, highly trained, well-respected, trusted, in service to Caesar himself, takes charge of Paul. They get on this ship in verse 2, a ship of Adramidium, and we put out to sea. Remember that these ships were not luxury liners. Uh, If you were going to travel on a ship, usually as, as in this case, it was a grain ship bringing grain from Alexandria, taking it back to Rome. Rome was highly dependent on Uh, the produce and and the grain coming out of Egypt to sustain life there in Rome, as they certainly had a healthy appetite for everything. We know, of course, that they were um, Epicureans, they were very self-centered people, and so because the world was under Roman rule, they were directing resources, of course, to Rome. So as you get on these ships, if you're going to be a passenger, hopefully you brought your tent with you and your sleeping bag, because your passage will be on the deck, And that's what was happening here. Remember, Paul was a tent maker. And a part of his livelihood was made making and selling tents that could be attached to the deck of a ship. And so, as they enter this ship, they're putting out to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia, Aristarchus. And then we find out, uh, excuse me, of Asia. And then Aristarchus, who was a Macedonian, and we find him back in uh, Thessalonica, where Paul met him, he was traveling with Paul. Um, J.R., I have a slide there on Paul's journeys that actually shows what's happening. If you could just put that up while we run through this passage here, please. So when that slide comes up, it's one that we've looked at before. It's showing the journeys of Paul, but there's also a line sort of showing the path that uh, Paul is now taking as he's going uh, to Rome. In verse 3, And the next day we landed at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and to receive care. Now for a Roman guard, there you go, thank you. For a Roman guard, and we learn this in many places as we've been going through the scriptures, they had charge of their prisoners. And if their prisoners escaped or something happened to them, the prisoner's sentence would be carried out on the one who was on guard duty at the time. And so Paul was going to be on trial. There was no charges against him. And Julius perhaps was even there as Paul gave his defense to King Agrippa and to Festus. And so we're told here that Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. In other words, he let Paul go. In other words, without a guard, he let Paul go and visit with his friends and go visit uh, the church members for wherever they were. And that was a pretty amazing thing. And again, we need to remind ourselves these are not just random happenstance things. These are, these are things that God himself was orchestrating on Paul's behalf. Uh, Paul had a very injured and battered body. We know that he had been beaten. All those miles wore on him. And so to have people who would come alongside and treat him and care for him. Remember Luke Was a doctor. Luke is writing this account. Luke is now traveling uh, with Paul. And so, no doubt, they're ministering to Paul. And even after two years of healing, there's still need for his wounds to be ministered to. So, God gives great favor on Paul's behalf to this man, Julius. And so, now in verse 4, when we had put out to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. You know, I just thought of this, and I wanted to share it back with respect to the favor that the Lord gave Paul with um, with this man Julius. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine on Friday. We had lunch together, and I've known him for about 28 years. Um, and this man, if I told you his name, some of you might know him. But but he he's just walked a different path. He's he's never owned a home; he's always rented. Um, but there's lots of things that when you think about it um, might go against conventional wisdom. But in, a couple of years ago, they were, the place that they were living in, uh, the owner decided he wanted to move into the place where they were living. So he basically kicked them out with less than eight weeks notice. And it was actually like in November around this time of the year. So you start thinking about, I have to find a place, right? So as he was telling me this story, and I didn't know it. I, I know this man very well, but I didn't know this thing had happened in his life. And so uh, he, was, he said at that point in time in ministry, there was so much going on in the church, we, we just didn't have time to look. And we just began to pray and said, God, if you want to move us, you've got to provide something. And so he was talking to a man in their church who was sort of a casual attender, not, not really a committed member, so to speak, but he was talking with him. And he just happened to be mentioning that uh, he has to move, you know, and he's like, I'm not sure what we're going to do. The, the, you know, the Lord's moving us and, you know, we're moving from here to there. And and he said, the guy just, his eyes lit up and he said, oh, I have a place you can move into. And he said, really? He says, yeah, actually, you can move in right now. It's available. And so when he moved in, not only did this man give him a, a, a place to live, but he didn't charge him market value rent. He said, we're paying maybe half of market value. And that's just what this guy wanted to do for us. God put it on our heart, on his heart. And I share that because I, you know, I don't think we hear those kinds of stories enough because what we do, I'll speak for myself here. Maybe you guys are nothing like me. You know, I'm like, we got to get a plan together. We you know we got to start calling. We got to, you know, dial for dollars here. We got to call hundred places. You know, we just got to get on it. We got to hit it. We got, we, we got to make something happen. But I so appreciated my friends saying, you know, we were focused on the ministry. We were focused on the work that God had given us, and we just prayed. And I love how God does those things. When we are willing to trust in him, to take a step back and to do something that's not conventional, you know, we might look at it and say, man, you're being irresponsible. You're not taking care of your family. And he was taking care of his family. He got on his knees before God. And God provided this amazing thing. So so don't take these things lightly that God might give favor. I know the number of times I've been out of jobs and I'm interviewing and I'm like, Lord, I don't know where you want me to go. Where do you want me to work? Uh, and I just, I've prayed that prayer many times. God, give me favor with someone. If, if there's somewhere you want me to go. And God has done that for me so many times. Whereas I've walked into an interview, and he's just granted a connection. And the interview didn't even go the way you would expect a normal interview to go. But then all of a sudden, it's like I'm getting an offer. And so God is that way, isn't he? He just takes care of us if we will trust him. So uh, we had put out the sea from there. We sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. So I'm going to stop here and point to the map for a moment. Maybe a little bit hard to tell, but there's a dark green line. It's the one kind of going across to the islands up to to Rome. So if you follow that line, you can see that's where we're talking about here, that, that dark green line. And so that's the journey that they are on right now as we're reading this. Um, And so they had come to Myra, a city of Lycia, and so that's up um, sort of where it says Asia. Just go straight down to the tip of that right there. There you go. You can see that there. So that's where they are as we're reading through the journey here. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. And when we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off of Cnidus the wind not permitting us to proceed we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salome. so as we read these things you may think okay well they're just on a journey but remember these are sailing ships they were totally depending on the currents and the wind and remember Paul had uh, the Lord had spoken to Paul and said you're going to Rome And I think sometimes we might have a bit of a misguided view thinking that if God speaks in such a way as he did here to Paul and he said, I'm going to get you to Rome, in our minds we kind of tend to think, well, that just means like we're going to get on the road, there's going to be no traffic, there's going to be no stoplights, and we're just going to go. But that's never the way it is, is there? There's always something. There's a flat tire, there's a detour, there's a storm, there's something. And so because these things happen doesn't mean that God's not in it. It doesn't mean that it's not God's will. And what I've found in my life, because I'm at the point where I can see back further than I can see ahead, I've learned that it's not just the destination. It's the journey. Because God has something for us in the journey. God has something He wants to teach us. Something that He wants us to learn. Maybe it's patience. Maybe it's that we need to learn to wait on the Lord and not go until he says go. Maybe he wants to put us in a difficult or an impossible situation so that we have to trust him, so that our resources are gone. The limits of our resources have been expended. They're being tested. And like my friend that I just mentioned, you, you have to just cry out to God, And so, uh, passing it with difficulty, that is, Salome, uh, we came to a place called Fairhavens. You can see that up there, kind of in the middle, right above the word Mediterranean. Uh, We came to a place called Fairhavens, near the city of Lycia. Now, when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, men, I perceive That this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. So the time of the year that they are sailing is actually about this time of the year. And it was understood as you go through these seasons that the winds and the currents became unfavorable for sailing. So beginning around the beginning of September, leading up to about, and believe it or not, this is a specific date, November 11th in the Mediterranean, you were traveling at great risk during that time. But after November 11th, they forbade travel. They said you would have to to winter. And so wherever you landed on your journey, on or about that date, that's where you were going to be wintering for about three or four months until the spring came, until everything turned to a more favorable uh, current and wind for traveling. So as they had come to this particular port, uh, they had decided that they were going to go forward. And Paul said, men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. So Paul speaking a word that we can only conclude that the Holy Spirit had given to him. And notice in verse 11, nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. You can understand these are businessmen. The owner of the ship, it's about money for him. He needs to get his cargo to destination or he doesn't get paid. The helmsman is probably a seasoned, salty salesman, a sailor rather. And so he's looking at things saying, no, we can do this. I've, I've seen way worse than this. We can do this. And so Paul is there, and and who knows, as as these people are looking at Paul and listening to him, they may be thinking, well, who are you? You're you're some crazy uh, imprisoned pastor. What do you know about sailing? And so they dismiss very quickly what he was saying. And so because the harbor, verse 12, was not suitable to winter in, The majority advised to set sail from there also if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and the northwest and winter there. So again, you can see where they had sort of wanted to go. And it's interesting that the the harbor of Crete, um, as it mentions there, that was opening toward the southwest and the northwest, as you entered it, perhaps you've seen harbors like this. There's actually a fairly large island in that harbor. So it actually shelters the harbor from the storm. So it's a perfect place to winter. So verse 13, when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. So because a, a wind, a favorable wind began to blow, they determined, okay, well, things are looking good. So we'll just make our decision and go. So as they began the journey, And it looked like at the beginning of the journey, things were going to go well, verse 14, but not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclidon. And if you have notes in your Bible, you might see there that it says something akin to a nor'easter. So that's something we understand very well in this part of the country. We know what nor'easter storms can be like. And, you know, that, that movie that was made about the Andrea Gale and how it was lost in a terrible... A nor'easter storm. uh, You know that that I watched that movie. I don't know if any of you watched. I can't. What was the name of it? Well, the Perfect Storm, right? That was the name of the movie. Um, Man, it just makes me not never want to get on a ship again after watching a movie like that, right? But these guys were caught in a storm. They were sailing essentially in a hurricane. Verse fifteen. So when the ship was caught. And could not head into the wind, we let her drive. In other words, they couldn't sail and steer the ship the way they wanted. The storm was just ravaging. It was out of control. And so they basically just let go and said, hey, man, whatever happens at this point, we're at the mercy of the storm. And running under the shelter of an island called Clada, we secured the skiff with, great, with difficulty. The skiff, of course, was the, the boat by which they could escape if, you know, there was their emergency boat. And when they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. So that the storm was beating the ship so severely. They had to take cables, and it's probably an amazing thing to think about how they could do this, but they had to probably go from the end and work the cables under and basically tie them around to secure the ship because it's loaded with grain. So that the storm, the fierceness of the storm doesn't cause the ship to just break apart. So again now, keeping in mind, Paul and his, his entourage are on this ship. We're told later there's about 276 people on this ship. And Paul has the promise of God that they are going to Rome. And yet they're in the worst storm you could be in. I mean, if you were sailing and you got caught in a storm like this, you would think this is certain death. So uh, when they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship and fearing lest we should run aground on the surface sands, they struck sail and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. So they began throwing cargo and and tackle and everything overboard just to lighten the ship so that the weight of the ship wouldn't be driven so deep when they would come off of those highways and fall into the, the trough of the waves. And on the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat upon us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. We're told that this was two weeks. Now, can you imagine being on a boat in a storm in a day or two and you're like, I'm done with this. They're, they're in a storm for two weeks verse 21. But after long abstinence from food, all hope was gone. They had given up. They're like, we're going to die. That's it. But after a long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. Paul was pretty brave to say that, right? To stand up and say that he's not a sailor. They basically told him they didn't want to hear what he had to say. And it's like, dude, they're going to throw you overboard. You better be quiet and sit down. But Paul, remember, is a spirit-filled man. He's a man filled with the love of God. Look what he says in verse 22. And now I urge you, take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. I imagine these people, think about all the people on this ship who don't know Christ. There's this man, this crazy guy, a pastor. He stands up on the ship, takes charge, and begins to bring encouragement. And he's saying, prophetically speaking, there will be no loss of life. God's going to deliver us. What does he say in verse 23? For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. So now he's saying angels are speaking to him. All right? Crazy. Saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God, that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. So Paul now gathering these people together. They're in an incredible storm. I imagine it's so hard for his voice to even be heard above the storm, above the wind and the waves. And yet he's there doing his best to encourage them, to bring hope, to restore hope, to bring life. And he's saying that God sent an angel to me to minister to me so that I could minister to you. Now let me pause here for a moment. Most of us, Probably haven't had an angel come and meet with us in this way. But remember, Paul's had a history of the Lord coming and speaking to him and encouraging him and meeting with him. And so, as Paul stands up to encourage these people, Paul is just simply sharing with them what God has done for him. He's sharing with them what God has spoken to his heart. And you see, Today, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've been walking with him for any length of time, if you've read this book, the Bible, then God has deposited in your heart and in your life the words of life, the words of hope. And just as Paul's doing in this scenario, so you and I can do in the same manner for other people. again, back to my uh, my lunch meeting on Friday with my friend as we were sitting there, you know we hadn't sat down together for a year or so so we were just catching up talking and there's this waitress serving us her name is, uh, was Sam you know tats everywhere and all that And uh, we were talking with her and, and uh, my pastor friend just began you know she came by you know, as our, our servers often do and just said hey you know is everything okay here how's it going can I get you something else to drink and all that and he just turned to her and he just began to engage her sort of in this way asked her her name You know, what's going on in your life? You know, how can we pray for you? And all of a sudden, you know, we were there in this restaurant praying for this woman, and she just opened up and shared her life. And uh, we found out out a little bit about, you know, what's going on in her life and, and, you know, her teenage son and the the challenges they're having. And all of a sudden, you know, she's serving us, but now we're serving her. And, And God is just that way. And he will use us if we are willing to take a step of faith, just like Paul did here, and to look people in the eye because we have the word of God, we have truth, and say, don't be afraid. God's ministered to me. And remember, there's there's a passage we often use, 2 Corinthians 11, when we uh, have the Lord's table. And Paul said in that passage, that which the Lord gave to me is that which I give to you. And that's the way it's supposed to be. What God has given to us, it's meant to be shared. It's not meant to be hoarded. And so when God has shared his word, when he shared his life, when he shared his forgiveness with us, that wasn't just for us. That's for others around us. And so Paul says here these incredible encouraging words in verse 25, therefore take heart men for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. In other words, God's going to deliver us. The end is deliverance. But he said, however, we must run aground on a certain island. This storm is going to mess with us. It's going to be a tough time. Paul said, uh, writing to Timothy near the end of his life, Second Timothy chapter 4, he wrote these words, At, first, at, my, at my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me, and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul was secure. Paul knew that he was rooted and grounded in Christ. And so he did not fear man, he feared God. And so he spoke as God had enabled him. So in verse 27, now when the 14th night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. Uh, So they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. Uh, so that was uh, 20 fathoms would have been about 120 feet. 15 fathoms would have been about 90 feet. So they had a way of determining as they were, that they were coming closer to land. Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea, under pretense of putting out anchors from the prowl, Uh, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. In other words, there was a few people who were thinking only of themselves and they're like, we're getting out of here before the ship crashes on the rocks. And Paul is saying, no, the promise was that God was going to deliver all of us together. And that's what Paul is saying here as he's saying, unless they stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So hopefully they're beginning to get the message that God is speaking to Paul. And he's given them a promise and that God's going to deliver all of them. Isn't it interesting that God is delivering all 276 people because of Paul? So hopefully they're beginning to realize this. And as the day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day you have waited and continued without food, and you've eaten nothing. I mean, who could eat under those conditions, under those circumstances? I imagine so many people, because of the violence of the storm, are just, you know, they're, they're, they're losing everything. And he says, Therefore I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. Imagine, in the midst of the storm, in the craziness of the storm, this is happening. And doesn't this sound like Jesus? Remember when the disciples were on the boat with Jesus? Jesus was asleep. They were like, Lord, don't you care? We're going to die. Jesus gets up and he rebukes the storm. And then he turns to them and he says, oh, you have little faith. And essentially says "And didn't I say we were going to the other side? And you let the storm distract you. You let the storm rob you of the joy I want you to have in the storm. I urge you to take nourishment. Paul taking charge of this voyage. This is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. What a powerful thing to be able to say in the midst of The worst storm that any of them have probably ever seen. And I find it so interesting that Paul never stops caring for people. And we've seen this all throughout Paul's ministry. Even when he was hurting, even the day after he was stoned and left for dead, what was he doing? He was up the next day ministering to people, preaching the gospel. And so many of us, when something happens in our lives, whatever it is, maybe it's something mental or emotional and we're kind of like, well, I can't cope right now. I can't deal with people or whatever it might be. You see, Christ strengthens us. Through Christ, I can do all things, right? Paul said that in Philippians. And so Paul looks at it and he says, you know, it doesn't matter that I'm in the storm, that we're in the storm, that everybody thinks they might die. I'm here to bring hope and encouragement. I'm here to to represent the presence of God to people. And so Paul is doing that. And when he had said these things, verse 35, look at what Paul's doing here. He took, thing, he, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them. Isn't it amazing there's any food at all even left on the ship after all they've been through, 14 days of being in a hurricane? Remember, they couldn't go below deck. There was no, they, they were on the deck. And and Paul now is conducting a communion service here on the deck of this ship with all of these people, even people who don't know Christ, right? He took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then, verse 36, they were all encouraged and they also took food for themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on board. Paul not looking at himself, not letting his eyes get fixated on the circumstances of the dire situation that they were in, but instead choosing to cling to the promise of God that I will deliver you, I will get you to Rome, you're going to stand before Caesar. This is just a bump in the road, Paul. This is nothing. We're going to get there. So don't be distracted. So when they had eaten enough, verse 38, they lightened the ship and they threw out the wheat into the sea. At this point, the captain of the ship had to be just losing it because this was his cargo. He's not going to get paid now. This voyage is a complete loss. They're losing the ship. They're losing money. They're losing the grain. But by God's grace, they are not losing their lives. And I think God is preaching to these people who don't know Christ through the storm that in the end you're going to stand before God and all you're going to stand before God with is your life. God's not going to look at your our resume. And for all those people who say, you know, I think I'll go to heaven because, you know, my good has outweighed my bad. God's not going to go looking at our list of good deeds versus our bad deeds. He's going to look at us and he say, are you covered by the blood of Christ or not? That's the evaluation God will apply to our lives when we stand before him. And when it was day, verse 39, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach unto which they planned to run the ship. So at this point, they're just like, we hope we can just kind of crash into the beach and get off before we die. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea. And meanwhile, losing the rudder ropes, they hoisted the mainsail um, to the wind and made for shore. In other words, they're just making one last push. But striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship ship aground and the prowl, stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. And the soldier's plan, look at this, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any of them should swim away and escape. Remember all these things Paul had said to them now. And now they've come up with their own plan. They don't want to die. They don't want to lose their lives. They have other prisoners on the the ship besides Paul. And so they came up with their own plan to kill the prisoners because they didn't want to die. But the centurion, verse 43, wanting to save Paul, notice again how Paul had, uh, the Lord had given favor on Paul's behalf. The centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship, and so it was that they all escaped safely, the land. Now chapter 28 is going to pick up the story with they all got to the island and God's going to do some amazing things on the island. But here they are jumping overboard, getting to, to shore, just barely with their lives. And that's it. They have nothing else, just themselves. And I think there's a few things that the Lord would have us glean from this story. Of what he was doing in and through the life of Paul in the midst of those 276 people, in the midst of probably the worst storm that they had always seen, ever seen. And here's one of the things that I think he wants us to walk away with. It's a simple reminder that God is always with us in the storm, and he will never leave us or forsake us. So this morning, maybe you need to be reminded of that. But here's another thing that we've learned from this story. We can hear the voice of the Lord in the storm if we're listening. Paul was listening. An angel appeared to him and spoke to him. And no doubt in in the things that Paul spoke to these people while he was on the ship, some of what he spoke to them were things that God had, had spoken to his own life. It was in the reservoir of his soul. And so he began to speak as the Lord had spoken to him in other times. He spoke what the Lord spoke to him in that storm, but he also pulled upon the reserve of things that God had spoken and ministered to his life from the past. So God's always with us in the storm. We can hear the voice of the Lord in the storm. Absolutely. And God wants us to hear his voice in the storm. But another thing we can learn is what a difference one man's faith can make in the lives of other people around him or her. See, so often we look at situations and we think, well, what can I do? I'm just one person. We have this view of ourselves And we're like, you know, I'm not going to change. What what can I do for the city of Manchester? How, How could God use me? But he can. And he wants to. And he will. And God used this man. Remember last week we were looking at the trial as Paul was there before King Agrippa and before King Festus. Remember, they had put him on trial but as we went through that, remember by the time we got to the end, what was happening? They were on trial. Paul was calling them out. He was, he was applying God's word to them and he said, do you believe King Agrippa? I know that you believe. I know that you believe these things. And he was calling him to the finish line. But remember, Agrippa wouldn't come across that line. He feared man too much. But God was using Paul there. He was using Paul here. And God wants to use anyone whose life is willing to be available to him. Here's another thing we learned from this story. A man or a woman of God is the one whose faith in God stands when terror invades the heart of others. A man or woman of God is the one whose faith in God stands when terror invades the hearts of others. That's what happened here in this story, right? They all thought they were going to die, but Paul stood and he said, God has spoken to me, God has given me strength, and I'm giving it to you. Another thing we learn from this story is that a crisis or a storm does not make a person. It doesn't define our lives. But one thing a crisis or a storm does is that it shows what we're made of. It shows our character, it reveals who we really are. by how we we respond to the storm, by how, how we respond to trials and difficulties. And I don't know about you, but so often I've seen this in myself on the other side of something. That was a trial or that was a storm and looking back and saying, you know, man, I could have done that differently. I could have responded better. I could have trusted the Lord more. I could have been a greater encourager to those who were in a storm that I, I I was there as a minister, but I didn't minister the way God wanted me to. And so we don't want to let, let the storms define us, but we do want to learn from the storms about ourselves, about our character, about what sort of person we truly are. Another thing we learn from this story is that we are often objective oriented, but we understand that God is process oriented. What does that mean? I just want to get to Rome. But you see, God's not just interested in getting to Rome. He's interested in how we get to Rome. He's interested in how we live and respond on the journey to Rome. And so it's, it's not just about the objective. It's not just getting to the end goal. It's, it's who we are and how we live. And it's living out the life of faith before God and before others something Pastor Mitch and I have sat and talked about many times, is that when we go through difficulties as servants, others are watching. And so how we handle those difficulties, our responses to the difficulties and the challenges of life, is important because others are watching. And it's not just true for pastors or ministers, it's true for all of us. Our co-workers, people who know we're believers, but they aren't. They're just looking for a reason to mock God, aren't they? Oh, there's another hypocrite. There's someone else who doesn't practice what they preach. But God wants to use our lives. And so thus, God is in the process. And then a few things about storms. You know, there are different storms. We've talked about this before whenever we've come to these kinds of passages and scenarios. But storms can be corrective, can't they? Remember Jonah, the prophet Jonah, he was, God was speaking to him, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and speak on my behalf. And Jonah was like, yeah, I, no, I'm, I'm thinking no, Lord, I'm going to say no to that one. And God said, no, you're going to Nineveh. And he said, no, I'm not. So Nineveh was, Nineveh was east, Jonah decides he's going west. And what does he do? He's like, gets on the bus and he has a thousand miles in the other direction. He's like, I'm not going. God says, yes, you are. So he gets to a port, he gets on a boat, similar to this one. They get out to sea, and what happens? The storm of his life happens, and then the, the, the captain and the other seamen, they, they, they begin to cast lots, there and they're like, God's doing something. This, is, this storm is God. God's doing this. And God must be doing it because someone on board is out of favor with God. It's an amazing story. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah, and they're like, dude, what'd you do? You're going to kill us. And he's like, just throw me overboard, and it'll be over. And they did, and they threw him overboard, and the storm ceased. And what did God do? And he brought along a great fish. You know, we often think it's a whale. It may be. But he got swallowed by that fish. And then that fish, if you look at a map, this is the amazing thing. He swims, I don't know, 1,000, 2,000 miles around and brings him and barfs him up on the beach of Nineveh. And so what did God do in Jonah's life? He brought correction, but he said, Jonah, you're... You know, see, God desires that we obey willingly, right? But with Jonah, he had to be forced to obey. So sometimes storms can be corrective. Jonah was headed in the wrong direction and God put him back on course, God put him in the right direction. And listen, when that happens, we ought to thank God. We ought to fall on our knees and thank God that in our stupidity and our sin, we didn't want to obey him. But he says, I'm going to get you there, even if you don't want to go. Sometimes storms are directive, where God says, you know, your life is getting off course. I need to get you back on course. And this story today, what happened is this storm, because it was driving them, it took them over 500 miles off of course of where they wanted to be. This storm was driving them somewhere else, and it was taking more time, and it was costing them their cargo. But God was directing their lives exactly in the way that he wanted things to go. Storms can be instructive, like the disciples in the boat with Jesus, as we talked about a little bit earlier. They were to go over to the other side. Jesus was going to deliver them. And when Jesus rebuked the storm, they also said, Who is this man who speaks to the wind and the wave? And you see, they knew much more of Jesus on the backside of the storm than they did on the front side of the storm. And sometimes storms are just to help instruct us on how to live on how to trust God on how to think properly and righteously and godly. Sometimes storms are refining. They are burning away or taking away the dross in our lives. They're blowing away the chaff of things that don't belong. You know, maybe God wants to take stuff out of our lives that we hold as precious, but in reality, it has become an, an idol to us. And God may want to refine and to burn away those things. As I was thinking about this, a few scriptures came to mind, and I'd like to run through them with you just as an indication, just to remind us that God, as we go through these trials and difficulties, may want to challenge us. Psalm 66 Verse 10, for you, O God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. You see, God does that. You know, in Hebrews chapter 12, we're told, quoting from the Old Testament, that God disciplines those whom he loves. And he goes on to say in that passage there, Hebrews chapter 12, verses uh, 5 through uh, 12, yes, where he says that, You know, what father who is a loving father doesn't discipline their children? It's necessary and it's right. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 10, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. That's the Lord testing someone to an extreme, like Jonah, who was kicking against the goads, who was rebelling against God. Isaiah forty-eight eleven for my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? I will not give my glory to another. That was the test for someone who was going in the wrong direction. In Zechariah chapter 13, he said, I will bring the one third through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name. And I will answer them and I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. In other words, God was refining those people to the place that then when they were tested, when they were put on trial, that they would turn and say, this is my God. This is my Lord. I'm not going to trust in me. I'm not going to trust in the things around me. You know, the Psalms are so filled with this, aren't they? I think it's Psalm 18. You know, we will not trust in chariots. We will not trust in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Malachi 3, listen to this one. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. Look, when we stand before him, we're going to be refined and exposed. I mean, we're going to be exposed in a way that most of us fear. And then finally, in Malachi 3.3, 3, he will set, sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord uh, an offering in righteousness. You see, God cares about these things. He cares about how he's represented. The last two, there's are storms of judgment. Remember Noah. Noah was on the right side of the storm. God obeyed uh, Noah obeyed God he built the ark as God had directed him remember it was a process of a hundred years that Noah built that ark while people came by and mocked him and then when the rain began and when the storm came Noah was on the right side of that storm because he trusted in God and as we mentioned with Jonah he was on the wrong side of the storm then there's those general storms of life finally we don't know what they are or what they're about But they're there. And some of it's just normal life. But believe me, in every storm, as we've been going through the potential kinds of storms that we can go through, God has something for us, doesn't he? Something that he wants to teach us, something he wants to learn. A pastor many years ago who was very instructive in my life said this about going through trials and storms. He says, God's trials are always meant to be passed. It's not pass-fail. But sometimes we get in a cycle where we get to keep undergoing the trial or going through the storm until we pass. It's always a pass-pass with God, not a pass-fail. And so when we go through these things, as Paul went through these things, we look to God, we remember what he said, We remember that that God has different purposes in the storm, but remember God is always with us. God is always speaking, and he wants us to hear his voice. He wants us to understand that we can make a difference if we will make our lives available to him. He wants us to understand that our faith in God can make a difference in the lives of other people. Paul said to these people, take heart, for I believe God. Today, I want to encourage you, take heart, because Paul believes in God, because I believe in God, and I know many, if not all of you, believe in God. Take heart and allow God to use you to bring encouragement to the lives of others who are also in the storm. Lord, we love you. We bless you this morning. You're so good to us. You're so faithful, Lord. And Lord, we needed this. We needed to hear this because sometimes life just gets so crazy. Things happen that we don't understand. Things that we thought were going to go one way go a different way. They they completely turn upside down. And and Lord, we we just we get our eyes on ourselves and we get upset and we get angry because of the inconvenience and all of that and yet in all of this you're trying to get our attention. And you want us to incline our ear and listen to you. So if we walk away with nothing else this morning, I pray it would be that we would look to you and listen in the storm. And God, I'm here, your servant's listening. You've got my attention, speak. Lord, use us. We love you. We know that you love us. It's so obvious that you love us, but we tend to forget Sometimes. So remind us this morning that you are always with us. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. That we are your sons and your daughters. That our names are written in the book of life from before the foundation of the earth. And we are going to make it to heaven just as Paul made it to Rome. And Lord, help us to find joy in the journey. And this morning, if you don't know Jesus, if you've never met him or you've never trusted in him, maybe you've been resisting him, I pray that you would turn right now in your heart to him and say, Lord Jesus, please come into my life and save me a sinner. Bring your love and your grace and your mercy in, Lord, and change me. I'm tired of struggling. I'm tired of the strife. And I pray that you would do that this morning. And if you have done that, I pray you'd talk to us afterwards that we can give you a Bible and just share the love of Christ with you. Lord, thank you. We bless your holy name in Jesus' name. Amen.